Well, good morning, everyone. Apologize for that. If I've not had a chance to meet you, my name is Aaron, and this is going to not be a very good beginning because I spent hours yesterday putting my slides together and everything, and I failed to do the last step to actually export them. So my son is back there going, Dad, can you get the slides really quick? So they might appear up there. If they don't, we're just going to pray that uh, we can all still connect with God deeply and dearly today. Uh, anyone here, oh, I guess this is an appropriate beginning, uh, anyone here stressed? Uh, okay, yeah, people feel life's full, things are a little crazy, maybe it's because you forgot to export your sermon slides, uh, maybe it's because you have a lot to get done before you go on vacation, uh, maybe you're stressed because you just got back from vacation, um, maybe you're stressed because you have little kids, maybe it's because you have big kids, maybe it's because you have adult kids. Maybe you're stressed because you just have a lot going on at work. Or maybe you've just packed a little too much into your schedule. Some of you, you're stressed because you've got a lot coming ahead here in the near future. And others of you, you're stressed because all you can do is just keep thinking about that thing in the past. When we feel this kind of stress, this overwhelmingness, we try to find some sort of escape, some sort of relief. Some of us, we turn to entertainment. We turn to food, we turn to certain substances, we maybe engage in a certain hobby, maybe we just pour more into work or we just try to go on another vacation. Some of the things we do, they're, they're really good, they're really good things. But so often what happens is we will spend the weekend watching season four of Stranger Things or we'll go camping or we'll do something, but then Monday rolls around. And we suddenly find ourselves right back on the treadmill. The stress has returned, and we just don't seem to have found the relief we were looking for. Because of this, there's been this movement for, I, I have no idea how long, but the, there's this movement to try to find this peace through what is being called centering. I suspect it has come out of the, by yoga enthusiasts, maybe it's out of Eastern religions, but what I've noticed over the last several years is this not just relegated to yoga, like this has spread through business, through multiple arenas of life. It's this idea that you will be centered. In fact, let me let the, uh, living, the living Roots Project define this for you. Being centered means being very balanced and at peace. It is often referred to as a state of emotional and spiritual equilibrium. It allows you to be accepting of the good and the bad in life and understand that things are always changing. But you can return to your center to help yourself feel more balanced and grounded when things are difficult. That's what we're wanting, isn't it? We're wanting to feel grounded. We want to have this peace. We want to be at equilibrium that no matter what life tries to throw at us to rock our boat, we stay steady. Now, that particular article on the Living Roots Project, they began to give, you know, some ideas of how you could begin this. But what I noticed was that they didn't give you a center, a foundation. They say you have to be grounded, but in order to be grounded, you have to have some sort of foundation. So I kept looking, found another website, the well, I think it's called Well and Good, they had a quote, and in there, they actually give the, their definition of what is a good foundation. And here's what they say. You are your own foundation for creating joy and fulfillment. Let me say that again. You 
are your own foundation for creating joy and fulfillment. Now that idea, that wisdom, if you will, is not just found on the Well and Good website. It is found all over Pinterest and Instagram. It is hanging on coffee shop walls and beauty salons. It's advice being shared over a glass of wine. It's being tattooed on people's bodies. This idea that you are enough. You have everything you need. You, you, you are the foundation to be centered. Now, maybe you think that sounds really wise. I mean, it fits with the wisdom of our, our day and age. Maybe it sounds really, really inspiring to you. But as your friend and pastor, I'm just going to let you know that try to find your foundation, your center in yourself, is like trying to anchor your boat at sea to the boat. You may love the look of that anchor. It may look really good hanging there on the side, but you're still going to drift. In order to find a foundation, in order to be grounded, you have to have something outside yourself. That's why we're going to study the book of Colossians. Today we begin a brand new series because in there, the Apostle Paul is going to tell us what should be our foundation, the place we can return to. What is it that will help us find that equilibrium that when, no matter what life throws our way, we can stay steady, we can be centered. So if you brought a Bible today, I invite you to open it up to, to the book of Colossians. Um, if you didn't bring a Bible, I would normally at this point say, don't worry about it. We're going to put the scripture on the screen. Uh, however, because of my failure, it might not happen, although I'm getting signals in the back that it may appear up there, so you might be in luck. But this is a great opportunity for me to say, do not rely on me or these screens. Rely on the scripture. So get a Bible into your hand. So if you need a digital Bible, feel free to download one to your phone. If you want a paper Bible, stop by our resource table on your way out. We will give one to you. That'll be our gift to you. We just want you to have a Bible. Uh, today, as you're opening up to Colossians, today we're going to be, um, I'm, I'm going to start with two stories. Uh, one story is going to be the story of the Apostle Paul. Paul wrote the book of Colossians. So you need to hear a little bit of his story to understand where he's coming from as he writes this gospel. The other story, though, is a little more modern. It's a story of someone else who also discovered the gospel. And this story is about me. Fifteen years ago, I was on staff at a large Bible church down in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. I was the young adult pastor, so I rarely ever preached on Sunday. I would preach maybe once, maybe at the most twice a year. Well, this particular year, the wife of our senior pastor was going to have a major surgery. He was in the middle of a doctrinal series. In other words, he was taking like a Sunday to talk about the doctrine of God, the doctrine of scripture, the doctrine of man. And so because he was going to be gone two weeks, he just assigned a couple of these Sundays to some of us. To me, he assigned the doctrine of sin. Now, I was not too happy. A couple weeks ago, we talked about sin, and I shared about my discomfort and having to reveal the truth of the scriptures, that all people are sinful. And it was really unfair because my friend Ty got assigned the next week the doctrine of Jesus. Like, I'd much rather talk about Jesus. It was like we were being set up to be good cop, bad cop. I got stuck with the bad cop role. So I reluctantly began to accept my assignment to dive into the scriptures and begin to study the doctrine of sin. If you're familiar with scriptures, you will not be surprised to hear that I ended up in Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis 3, we read about the very first sin 
ever committed by Adam and Eve. If you're not familiar with the story, God creates Adam and Eve in chapter 1, along with everything else, but with Adam and Eve, he does it different. He creates them in his image, gives them personality, gives them will, like just puts some of who he is a little bit in them to then care for all of the rest of creation. But in chapter 2, we discover that God has given them only one rule. Kids, how would you love to be in a household where your mom and dad really only have one rule? You probably feel like your parents have like thousands of rules. No, Adam and Eve only had one rule. Just don't eat this fruit. This one tree. Every other tree was available to them. There must have been hundreds, if not thousands of them. I mean, just think about the buffet. Just don't eat this one. Well, in chapter 3 we discover a little conversation that Satan has with Eve. Satan shows up as a serpent, tricks and manipulates her, kind of lies to her, gets her doubting, and so she plucks the fruit, eats it, and gives some to her husband, who must be right there, and Adam eats as well. And as soon as they ate of the fruit, everything changed. Sin came crashing into God's created order. And it fundamentally changed their relationship with God, their relationship with one another, even their relationship with themselves. Well, in a little bit, God shows up and begins to talk to them. Some people think that God's like pronouncing curses against them because they've done this horrible, evil thing. No, he's not cursing them. He's merely announcing the natural consequences of their sin. To Adam, it was things like, you know, the the land is going to be really, really hard. It's going to be difficult to do your labor and toil. To Eve, you know, childbirth will be really painful. But God also announces something to Satan, the serpent. The, the first half is where he says, you know, you're going to crawl on your belly and, you know, adds to the, the mystique that this is why snakes have no legs and, and crawl around. But then he says something very, very interesting in Genesis 3, verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, many scholars believe that this is the very first prophecy, not only the first prophecy in all of Scripture, it's the first prophecy about Jesus. Let me uncover it for you. It starts with that word offspring. The word offspring has both a plurality to it and an individuality. Like if I called up one of my children up here, I could say, this is my offspring. But if I brought all four of my children up here, I could say, this is my offspring, and both would be accurate. And that's happening here. In one level, the offspring of Eve is all humans, and there is enmity, hostility between humans and, well, serpents on one level, but but also with with, uh, Satan and and sin. But there's also, notice in, in the second half, it says he. So there's an individuality as well to this. And this he has a very interesting interaction with the serpent. It says that he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And that is fulfilled in the cross. When Jesus, sorry, let, let let me start with Satan, the serpent. Satan gets all of the Jewish people, not all of the Jewish people, all of the Jewish leaders, as well as the Romans, in a frenzy, to have Jesus falsely arrested, falsely accused, he's found guilty, and they execute him. That was like the fangs of the serpent going into the heel, delivering the poisonous blow. But in that exact same act, 
it's like Jesus crushes the head of the serpent, defeating and killing him, because it's through this act of death that Jesus, the only human to have ever lived who never sinned, goes and dies as though he is a sinner, as though he is a criminal. But by doing so, he pays the penalty of sin so that humanity, the offspring of Eve, could find life once again. So here I am studying for this sermon I don't want to deliver on a topic I'm uncomfortable with, when all of a sudden as I'm here in this verse, the proverbial light bulb went off. It was suddenly like this aha moment. I suddenly realized that God's response to Genesis 3, God's response to sin, is the cross. Now, on a cognitive level, I knew this. But suddenly, it took on a whole new meaning. Suddenly, it meant that the, the, the toil that Adam was going to go through and work, suddenly, through the gospel, work could become a joy again. That the, the, the hostility that would be, exist between Adam and Eve, that, that the gospel is what could help bring healing to marriages. That, 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 that what we see in, in Genesis chapter 4, the, the envy, the anger, the strife that exists between Cain and Abel, that can be healed through the gospel. That just as Adam and Eve spiritually died the moment they ate that fruit, through the gospel, they could find spiritual life. They were resurrected spiritually. So when that light bulb went on, I had two simultaneous emotions. The first was excitement. I was excited to see this revelation, to see the, the scripture, see how everything was tied together. It was kind of like putting together a puzzle, but you don't have the box top. Just as, as the pieces come together, it's suddenly like, oh, I see what I'm making. But I also was embarrassed. This felt so basic, so fundamental to the Christian faith. Here I was, a pastor on staff at a large, healthy Bible church, about ready to preach a sermon, and I'm just now figuring this out. Paul went on a very similar journey. Just as that moment changed the way I do ministry, the way I do counseling, the way I interact with people, Paul also had a light bulb moment that changed everything. In the book of Acts, chapter 7, we meet Paul. He was also known by Saul. Saul is this rising like, star within Judaism. He's a well-respected rabbi. He's, going, he's, he's moving up, getting ready to move into great leadership. And he was so zealous for his Jewish faith that he was going around arresting people to keep them silent because they believed Jesus was the Messiah. He, he thought this whole story of Jesus of Nazareth being the Messiah, this is crazy. They conjured up this idea that he rose again from the dead. We've got to squelch this. They're trying to ruin our faith. And so he was arresting them to silence them, even approving of their death. Well, in chapter 9 of the book of Acts, he gets some letters gets approval to go to Damascus. He's going to show them to the Jewish leaders in Damascus and then begin to round up all of these crazy Jesus followers. When on the way, Jesus himself shows up. Now, keep in mind, Jesus had already risen from the dead and ascended to heaven, no longer on earth, and yet suddenly Jesus shows up. I'm just like, dude, what are you doing? And in that moment when he meets Jesus, he realizes it's true, and he's embarrassed at how wrong he was and it changes everything instead of beginning to travel around arresting jesus followers he began to travel around trying to make jesus followers over time paul's ministry becomes that of a missionary he would travel to strategic churches 
telling people the gospel, some people would believe it, and then a church would rise up. Over time, though, Paul would travel around planting these churches, and a certain church would come to mind. Or maybe he'd receive word about a church, and maybe it wasn't doing so well. And so Pastor Paul just couldn't help himself. He would write a letter back to them. Things like the book of Ephesians, Galatians, Thessalonians. He's writing these letters back to these churches that he'd planted. Now, there's three letters in the New Testament from Paul that are to pastors. The rest are to churches. Of those that are to churches, only two are to churches he did not plant. The first is the book of Romans. Now, Paul ended up in Rome. It's just he got there years later as a prisoner. He showed up in handcuffs, not there to help people find freedom in Christ. The second church is the church in Colossae, which we know as the book of Colossians. The closest that we know of that Paul got to Colossae was when he was in Ephesus. Paul went to Ephesus, planted a church there, well, shared the gospel, people believed, and a church formed. And then, with his, it was about 100 miles, uh, Ephesus is about 100 miles west of Colossae. Well, Paul stayed in Ephesus for three years. It was such a strategic place that he ended up leaving his protege, his guy, Timothy, to pastor it when he took off to go and continue his missionary journeys. It is believed that some guys, particularly a guy by the name of Epaphras, ended up making the walk the 100 miles east to Colossae. And there they did exactly what Paul had done. Just as Paul had come into Ephesus, shared the gospel, and a church is planted, they walk into Colossae. Epaphras is probably from Colossae. He shares the gospel, and a church is planted. Well, then Epaphras, maybe a few years later, ends up making his way to Rome, he connects with Paul, who's in, under house arrest, and tells him, Paul, just as you came to Ephesus and I found Jesus when you were there, I went back to my hometown to Colossae. I shared the gospel and a church formed. Paul is elated. He's so thrilled and excited to learn this. And so he wants to write him a letter just to say, I heard about you guys. I'm so excited. But I think there's also something else going on. See, Colossae may not have been a strategic city, but it had a reputation. This was a religiously crazy city. There were a number of cults there and even other Jews in other, in other cities looked at the Jewish people in Colossae and thought they were liberal, thought they were crazy because they had allowed them to be so infected and affected by the culture around them. And so I wonder if for Paul, as he's excited to hear this news, also wonders, oh no. Like, is some heresy going to slip in there? Is someone going to lead them astray, try and tell them something that's not true? So he wants to help shore up their faith. He wants them to really understand what it means to be centered. So he writes them this letter. That's my hope for you. It's just as Paul was writing this letter to the people in Colossae, hoping that they would become centered in Jesus. My hope is that for you, you too will read and study this book with us and you will become centered in Jesus. And so that means if you're not a follower of Jesus yet, this is the absolute perfect sermon series for you to participate in because you're going to hear very clearly the gospel story and how it can be the foundation for all of your life. If, if you're brand new in your faith, this is the perfect series. This is going to help you grow as well as anything could help you grow. And if you've been following Jesus for a while, but you're in a really dry season right now, this might be what God uses to awaken that, to bring you out of that winter into the spring.
And if you're a Christian who's given your whole life to this, this will just merely encourage you and help you to keep going. So as we get ready to dive in, let's pray together. So Heavenly Father, as we now come to your holy scriptures, help us to see the importance of the gospel. Just as I had that light bulb moment some 15 years ago, just as you showed up to Paul, I pray you would do that for us, that you'd give a lot of people some light bulb moments, that they would suddenly see you and they would realize that they've been trying to build a foundation on themselves or on their jobs or on some other identity, that they would hear very clearly your invitation to build our foundation upon you. So God, help us to become Jesus-centered people who live Jesus-centered lives, because as we're going to see today, it will make all the difference in us and for the sake of those around us. So God, lead us now. Teach us from your scriptures. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So with all that, we finally get to Colossians chapter 1. All right, let's read verses 1 through 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. This is how Paul starts most all of his letters. And it's not because it's unique to Paul. It was the way they did letters at that time. In the first century, they would start with who's the author rather than be like us and put it at the very end. And if you think about it, that's actually smarter because you don't want to open up a letter and go, wait, who's this from? Flip to the end, oh, it's from Joe. And then you can finally go and read it in Joe's voice. No, you start it right off, Paul. And then he says, oh, by the way, this is two, and we'll get to that in a moment. But what I want you to notice is that Paul identifies himself. He says that he is an apostle. Now, there's kind of two layers to apostle. There's the 12 apostles that Jesus used as kind of the foundation for the church, but then there's the apostle that the word just simply means one who is sent. Think of like missionary, right? Paul was both. He was an apostle, one of the 12, well, 13th, but then he was a missionary traveling around sharing this gospel. It was through Paul's ministry that so much of the, the Christian faith spread. But notice he doesn't just say that he's an apostle. He makes it very clear. He's an apostle of Christ Jesus. He wants them to know, I'm in Christ. He's not just like an apostle of some other, you know, cult's God. No, he's of Christ. But I want you to see, he doesn't just pick this because, oh, you know, it sounds kind of cool to be an apostle of Christ. You know, this isn't like self-selected. It's not like if I just announced, God has shown me that I'm now a bishop. No, it's not like just he picked this. It's God chose this. He says this is by the will of God. It's by the will of God. At Riverwood, we uh, get our name from uh, the book of Ezekiel. In Ezekiel 47, there's a story about a river that, that flows from the temple, and everywhere the river flows, there's suddenly life. And so we believe that river represents Jesus. And there's these trees growing by the river, so that's where we get the wood but there's this section where Ezekiel the prophet walks through this river four times. Each time, the river is deeper. The fourth time he walks in it, he can't touch the bottom. He says it's over his head. Well, at Riverwood, our desire is for you to not only step into the river to find life in Jesus, but to go deeper, that you would be discipled to become more like Christ. But that means that when you reach that fourth level, you can't touch bottom, you're over your head. That now means the river's in control. You're no longer able to just walk where you want because your feet can't reach the bottom. Now God is taking you. 
that's where Paul was at. Paul had completely given his life over to God. It was like he picked up his feet in the river, and if God wanted to send him to Ephesus, he goes to Ephesus. God wants to send him to Philippi, he goes to Philippi. God wants him in prison in Rome, he goes to prison in Rome. He is an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. How do you see yourself? Where where are you at? When people ask you, who are you? If you're signing a letter, how do you identify it? Paul, I think the reason he said that he's an apostle here is because of his audience. In three of his other letters, he identifies himself as a bondservant. Philippians, Romans, and, and his letter to Titus. In two letters, First and Second Thessalonians, he doesn't identify himself as all, just his name. There's two other authors with him. Why, why does he identify himself as an apostle here? Because of his audience. If I were writing a letter to my wife, I, I, well, I wouldn't do this. I'd sign it, you know, love Aaron. But no, I could say, your husband, Aaron. But if I write a letter to my children, I, I wouldn't sign it your husband because that's just wrong and weird. It'd be your dad, Aaron. He's considering his audience. And because he's never met these people, he doesn't know the, the names of the faces. He doesn't know the stories. All he's heard is what Epaphras has told him. He wants them to listen to them. He wants to make sure they understand this gospel. So he starts it off. This is coming to you, an apostle, someone with authority, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Guys, I didn't pick this. God chose this. And he's also chosen you. And that's what we see next. In verse 2, as he says, who his letter is to. It's to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ. You see, in order for Paul to really be at a place where he could pick up his feet in the river and trust God that no matter where he sends him, even prison in Rome, he's okay with it, meant he had to be centered. He had to be calm. He had to be at peace with this. And because his trust was in God, okay, God wants me in prison. I'll happily go to prison. God used that time where he was in house arrest to write all these letters to all these these churches. And so we get the scriptures because of that. And, And so Paul's like, I can trust him because I'm centered in Christ. Now what he's wanting them to realize is that you too can be centered in Christ. That's why he starts it off that he's writing this to not just the people in Colossae. No, this is to the saints. As some of us, we think of a saint as someone who's like lived really, really morally pure. Maybe they live holier than thou. Maybe some of us, you know, come from a Catholic background. And, and so a saint is, you know, someone that the Catholic church has said has reached sainthood. But, but to Paul, a saint is merely someone who's put their faith in Jesus. So if you've put your faith in Jesus, you're a saint. Even if you yelled at your kids this morning, even if you left work early on Friday, even if you kind of cut some corners, God doesn't approve of those things, but he loves you. And because you're in Christ, you're a saint. What he's doing is he's wanting them to realize that you too are in Christ. Just as I am in Christ, an apostle of Christ Jesus, you are faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. And because you're in Christ, you can begin to live a Jesus-centered life. And that's what he begins to introduce to us in verses 3 through 8. We, meaning him and Timothy, if you notice there, he's writing this alongside Timothy. So Timothy's made it to Rome, you know, probably traveled with Epaphras. They've told him what's been happening. So he writes a letter to Ephesus. He also writes one to Colossae. So Timothy's a part of this. So Timothy and Paul hear about what's happening in Colossae, and we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. 
since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you've heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world. It is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a fellow minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Paul, in this section, starts off with giving thanks. The uh, uh, IVP Bible background commentary said that in many letters of this day and age, it was customary to start off with, you know, this is from so-and-so to this group of people or to this person, and then they'd move into thanks. And they would often give thanks to a God or to a, a collection of gods. And they would say all this like really nice stuff. If you go and you read some of Paul's other letters in the New Testament, you, you will notice this pattern. Well, because Paul says a bunch of like fluffy stuff here, I think sometimes we just kind of skim over it. Uh, last week, some of you had the opportunity to meet Mark Biorlo. Uh, Mark's the new uh, president for uh, Converge North Central. Uh, as he's getting to know the district, which is Minnesota and Iowa, he's been trying to get around to, to all the churches, and so he came and visited Riverwood last week. So um, Mark, after everything was done, was so incredibly complimentary. I mean, for instance, he just praised you guys. And in fact, I didn't know he was going to do this. He tested you. Twice, he went and found a place to sit just by himself. And he said within a minute, someone came up to him and greeted him. He was just so impressed by that. So whoever did that, thank you. You helped Mark be really impressed with us. All right, Mark also just said incredibly kind things about Jake and the worship team. Uh, he, he said, you know, just some other things. In fact, he said that he really, really liked Waverly. He could easily see himself living here. And if he lived in Waverly, he said, without a doubt, I would attend Riverwood. He said, there was just such a sweet spirit. There was just a, 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 a sense of God's presence. Like, you guys were doing things with intention. He goes, I would, I would without hesitation, I'd want to be part of Riverwood. But there was one thing he said that I kind of went, really? That was when we walked in the doors. And immediately, Mark goes, wow, this has to be probably the best facility I've ever seen for a church your size. And inside, I'm thinking, Really? Because Mark travels to hundreds of churches. He's probably seen thousands. He's seen the big, massive, mega churches. He's seen small, little churches. I mean, he's seen a wide variety. Now, I think we've got it good. I, I'm, I'm really impressed with our design team and, and, and the, the group that helped lay this out. I, I think this is a great building, but the best? And, and so because this was early on in Mark's time with us, I just thought, you know, Mark's just trying to lay on the compliments. He's just trying to be really encouraging. He's just trying to be really, really nice because maybe later he's going to see something and go, oh, that's not good. So if he says all these nice things, that'll like make the, the hard things softer. So I just kind of filed it away and put it aside. I think a lot of people do that with these six verses, verses three through eight. They see Paul say all this really nice stuff about the people and they just kind of like, oh, he's just trying to butter them up because he's probably going to say some hard things later in the letter. We'll just file this away, put it away. Let's move on to the real stuff. But to do that is a huge mistake. Paul, so often in this sort of thanks section, gives us little clues of the themes he's going to be addressing throughout. And so we need to stop and really look at what does he say in verses 3 through 8, because it may actually help us to understand what he's getting at in the rest of the letter. So I'm just going to ruin it for you. Spoiler alert. 
the heart of this section is the gospel. And I don't just mean thematically or figuratively. I mean literally. Look at it right there in the very middle in verse 5. There's that word, the gospel. And so because the gospel is the absolute center of this section, what I want to do is I want to just work out from it. Right? So look what comes right before it. He describes the gospel. He calls it the word of the truth. In other words, this is not the crazy fable that the cults or maybe the Jewish people right there in Colossae are trying to tell you. No, the story of Jesus' death and resurrection is true. It changed my life. I've seen it change all sorts of other people's life, and it's even beginning to change your life. It's the word of truth. But then notice what he says immediately after the gospel. He says, it has come to you. This wasn't something that they just conjured up of themselves. It isn't them in a moment of meditation as they're centering, going, oh, I think this is what it's all about. No, it came to them. It came through Epaphras, through some Jesus followers from Ephesus. They come in, they shared this gospel, and some of these people in Colossae heard it and believed it. They realized it was truth. The word of truth, the gospel, had come to them. But notice it isn't just for them. It says that it is for the whole world. And notice what he says about it for the whole world. That it is bearing fruit and increasing. It doesn't just come in and make a little change. No, it's increasing. It's growing. It's getting into the river and continuing to go deeper. This isn't about just saying some prayer, saying, all right, I guess I got my fire insurance. I'm good. No, it's continuing to give more of your life to Christ. It's bearing fruit and it's increasing. But it's not just increasing somewhere else around the world. He says it's even increasing right there among you. How does Paul know? I mean, he's not there. All he's heard is what Epaphras has told him. Well, Epaphras has told him that, they, that he sees it in the way they're living. Skip back up to verse 4. They've received this word of truth. This gospel has come to them. And so they first, we see, they put their faith in Christ Jesus. So this gospel, when they heard it, it awakened something within them, and so they put their faith in Christ. Well, that faith in Christ then leads them to live it out, and that leads to the next phrase, that they see it in the love they have for all the saints. So in other words, if you have a faith in Christ, it's not just to make your brain bigger and you smarter, it's to change the way you live. And what Paul sees is that to be Jesus-centered leads you to love others, especially the saints. How are you doing loving other saints? How, when you show up on Sunday, there's probably certain people that you're like, hey, great to see you. And other people are like, oh, I'm going to go this way. I, I'm, I'm thankful that I don't know of those sort of things, but I, I, I've heard of those things in other churches so often. Are, are you loving the saints? If you're struggling to love someone, maybe return back to the gospel. Get centered and allow God's love for you, despite your sin, despite your weakness, despite your failings, let that wash over you and change you. Because as your faith grows in Christ, you can begin to even love that person. But then notice, this love comes from something else. Verse 5, it is because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. When Paul uses the word hope, he doesn't use it like we do. It's not like a wish. Well, I hope she says yes to a date. Sorry, she say, she'll say no. 
No, it, it, it's hope of, I know it's coming. Like, I, I know I'm going to get it. I, it. It's going to be here. And what is it that they're hoping for? That which is laid up for them in heaven. Christians, unfortunately, have a really twisted idea when it comes to heaven. It, it seems to be one of two extremes. Some people are so heavenly minded, they're of no earthly good. Like, all they can think about is getting to heaven, escaping this painful life. That's all they do. And so there's no loving of the saints around them. Other people don't give it a thought to heaven. They're so wrapped up in life here, and it just becomes overwhelming. Paul is saying when you're Jesus-centered and you're living a Jesus-centered life, your thought, your hope, your longing is for heaven because that's where God is. You want to be in his presence, but because God has shown such love to you, you can't help but love everyone here. So heaven should actually make us appreciate earth all the more. And our time on earth should make us look for heaven so much more. That's what Paul wants for you. When your life is in Christ, you have this faith. It changes you and makes you love. And it instills within you hope. And when you have hope, you don't find yourself having to run to Netflix, having to run to food, having to engage in certain substances in order to find that relief. Because you've got God. You've got Jesus. You've got the gospel. So come back next week. Join us as we go through this book, as we see this beautiful, powerful, life-changing gospel, this foundation that God wants us to return to, because as we center ourselves in this gospel, we're going to find what we're looking for, folks. And it will not only change us and this relationship we have with God, it'll change the world around us. And it will help us to live like Jesus lived and love like Jesus loved. So Heavenly Father, we just want to pray and commit all of this to you. We are your people. This gospel is your story. And we pray that you would write it into our hearts and into our minds. Help us to become Jesus-centered people, living Jesus-centered lives. God, for the person who's never put their faith in you, I pray that right now you would allow them to just hear you calling them that they'd realize this whole crazy story is true, that you, the triune God, made mankind in your image, that men and women sinned against you. We've walked away, but that even though that image within us was distorted and destroyed, it was not obliterated. It was not eliminated. You want to resurrect us spiritually. So I pray that right now they would give their life to you just as believers in Ephesus and Colossae and all around the globe have heard this gospel and it has bore fruit and it is increasing, I pray that right now it would increase by changing them. God, hear them right now as they confess their sin, as they declare their faith, as they give themselves to you, as they enter into this river and they find life. And Heavenly Father, I pray for the person who feels young in their faith. Maybe they've got a lot of church background. Maybe they've uh, um, been, been aware of Christianity for a long, long time, and yet maybe they felt like I did 15 years ago, and the light bulb just hasn't really gone off. Lord, I pray that you would make this their light bulb moment, that they would understand just even deeper your love for them because your image is in them. You want to restore this, and you want to do work powerfully. God, help them to go deeper in your river. They've stepped in. They know about Jesus. They've given their life to you, but they're so wrapped up in the things of this world. Lord, would you help lift their eyes up? May they see the hope of what is laid up for them in heaven. May you increase their faith. But God, as you increase our faith, would you also increase our love? That as we understand just how 
great the love of you is for us, that that would compel us to go and display your love to the world around us. God, there are other people around that they're trying to find their center in their jobs and their, their marriages and in parenting and their income and, and whatever. And God, just as you're calling us to center ourselves on Jesus, these other people need you as well. So Father, as you call us deeper in this river, would you help us to be Jesus with flesh on? That we would go and love these people like you would love them? To live among them the way you, Jesus, would live among them? So that we might one day have the joy of your faith, of your gospel coming to them, your word of truth, and we see them put their faith in you, and they begin to love and hope. So God, that's what these next holy moments are for. Would you just minister through this song, this time of prayer, as we take of the communion elements, would you just use all of this for your kingdom and your glory, for our joy? Would you call us deeper into this river? So God, use these next moments in our lives to do what you need to do, what you want to do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.